You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Jason Blazakis, who's a professor of practice at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, where he's also the director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism. From 2008 to August 2018, he was the director of the Office of Counterterrorism Finance and Designations at the U.S. Department of State, where he advised both Democrat and Republican administrations on matters related to the terrorist designations of individuals, groups, and state sponsors of terrorism. So welcome, Jason. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Great to be here, Vince. So you've been doing this for a while, not just uh, at the State Department. Prior to state, you were at the Congressional Research Service and working for a member of Congress's office. What got you first interested in counterterrorism? We have a lot of listeners out there who are early career professionals, kind of thinking about a career, lots of different paths to take to get to the, the level you are in your career. So what got you first interested? Absolutely. It was a circuitous path, for sure. And I was working for a member of Congress, a congressman by the name of Jim Saxton, and that's where I was first really exposed to issues of national security. I worked for him between 1997, 2001, and at the same time was going to graduate school at Johns Hopkins. And that part-time graduate school experience wasn't satisfying, so I wanted to do something more full-time, went to New York City, um, went to Columbia University to pursue an advanced degree, uh, a degree in international security, and that's what really prompted my interest. That, coupled with the fact that on 9-11, I was living in New York City, and in fact was also in Washington, D.C. during 9-11, and that really motivated me. Coming back from Washington, D.C., to see the Twin Towers where they once were, seeing them smolder, that's what motivated me. I was going to Columbia for a joint degree program, dropped one component of the program, wanted to get back into government service as quickly as possible, really wanted to get into counterterrorism, but it took me a while to get there. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, is there something that at that point you said, okay, here's how I'm going to prepare for a career? Like, it's not just about taking classes. Certainly, I mean, at, certainly at this time around 9-11, there weren't a lot of universities set up. For, I mean, now they're everywhere. Absolutely. And now you have organizations like Start at the University of Maryland and others that really, really hunker down on counterterrorism. But at the time, there weren't a lot. So how did you prepare for the eventual job that you had? Well, a lot of it was really just taking classes with uh, professors like Dr. Richard Betts. And one of the 
top professors I had at Columbia who really motivated me to get interested in the issue of counterterrorism and intelligence was Dr. Mark Lowenthal. He was a professor of mine at Columbia. He was working at the CIA at the same time. He had worked at the Congressional Research Service as well as you're probably aware. And it was really learning from him that got my juices going about national security, intelligence, and counterterrorism. So it was really the book learning combined with that um, very tragic experience of 9-11, seeing it with your own eyes and seeing the aftermath. And that's what really motivated me to want to understand why terrorists kill, why terrorists raise funds, how they raise funds, and what the U.S. government was doing about it. I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be directly in the mix. And I thought where I can make my contributions was in the area of policy and intelligence. Well, if you're interested, listeners, uh, we did do a podcast with Mark Lowenthal about a year and a half ago, so you can check that out. Uh, and if you want to know about strategic warning, Richard Betts literally wrote the book on it. Um, he, he invented that concept, and he's still a top mind in that field. So worth checking out his writings as well. I want to ask you a little bit about what your former office did, the State Department Office of Counterterrorism Finance and Designations. Um, and, and start by focusing a little bit more on the financial side, because I think a lot of people, I mean, if they work in CT, they understand this concept, but let, let's assume they don't, about how important finances to terrorist operations. It's not just, you know, making a bomb in a, in a tent somewhere in the Middle East. There's a lot that goes, these are expensive attacks. I mean, 9-11 costs millions of dollars. Yeah. That's a, a great question. And terrorism finance is somewhat of a, a new topic of, of study, but there was a historian, a, a scholar of terrorism by the name of Walter Locker who wrote terrorism operations and if terrorists just don't live by enthusiasm alone they also need a great deal of money so in the context of terrorist activity terrorists do need money for their operations they need money for their ieds or improvised explosive devices their machine guns to carry out havoc and terror but they also need a great deal of money to feed their soldiers to provide them a sanctuary to live to do things that Generally, people do just to survive. So the financial part of a terrorist structure and organization is vitally important in the context of finance. And what we did in my office, in the Office of Counterterrorism Finance and Designations at the State Department, was think how we could use our counterterrorism finance tools to curb the flow of terrorism finance. And one of the primary tools we used at the State Department was our designations of foreign terrorist organizations, pursuant to the Immigration Nationality Act, the designations of individuals and entities under an executive order, Executive Order 13224, and the designations of state sponsors of terrorism, such as countries like Iran, Syria, North Korea, and Sudan, and thinking about trying to take away the finances that groups can accrue from states as well. And that process is a process where I like to say the sanctions process of terrorists is the intersection of law, policy, and intelligence. You gave a talk, I guess, last month about ISIS and antiquities, about the idea, uh, and this might sound familiar to, to some people in the Washington, D.C. area, because there'll be an unnamed museum that got in some trouble because they were bringing in artifacts that had seemed to have been acquired by ISIS and then kind of sold off for, for funding. Uh, ISIS, people, as out of the news a little bit, because, you know, the actual physical caliphate has shrank some, but they're certainly still a danger and they're still funding their their nefarious activities through the sale of some of the most priceless artifacts on earth. How can the State Department or anyone else stand in the way of that? This seems like, is it a supply or a demand issue, right? Can you attack this on both ends? 
You absolutely can in the context of the Islamic State. The Islamic State, I like to say, and many other scholars like to say, is the richest terrorist group that history has ever seen. And the part of the reason why they were so rich is they had a very diversified income stream, much of, of which was based on the fact that the organization had a great amount of territory. They were able to make money by selling oil illegally, moving it through Turkey. They were able to exploit antiquities out of the ground. As you mentioned, Vince, another part of the group's ability to finance itself related to its territory. And the organization also exploited the captive population within Syria and Iraq by extorting them and taxing them. Those are very significant sources of finance. In one way, the United States government and the global coalition to counter ISIS tackled that problem was by using kinetic um, activities to literally bomb the trucks that were moving oil on behalf of ISIS to root out the organizations from its territory. Does that work for all sources of ISIS's finances? Absolutely not. There are other mechanisms that you have to use to go after the supply of ISIS finances to include trying to block the organization from the formal financial system. And that's why the State Department and the Treasury Department and international community, including the United Nations, have sanctioned ISIS and ISIS facilitators worldwide. But there's other things that uh, governments can do as well, ranging from building capacity of countries so they could prosecute individuals who are terrorist financiers, moving money on behalf of ISIS, to working with Silicon Valley companies to counter the organization's ability to raise funds through mechanisms like crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. Let me, let me switch. To, ISIS is, is kind of an easy target because there's not a lot of people that like them. Uh, but I want to ask you about state sponsors of terrorism. Sure. These are countries, like you mentioned, talking about Syria, Iran, North Korea. Cuba ends up on that list from time to time. Um, I wonder about the difficulty of shaping the public narrative focused on these countries. Because on one hand, countries like Iran have allies throughout the Middle East and Russia and other places. North Korea has allies in China or at least quasi-allies in China. The, the relationship's not as good as it used to be. How do you go about shaping the public understanding of this without revealing sources and methods, right? Because a lot of times the information that you have about their sponsorship comes from secret sources. Absolutely. It's the most difficult challenge in my office, my old office, to really handle and to think about because the state sponsor of terrorism program, that sanction program, has been in existence since the 1970s. In a way, it's a, uh, it's a very broad, expansive tool. It's not a targeted tool. Sanctions today have been developed to be more sanctioned or targeted and nuanced in manner. And because of those targeted sanctions, you're able to have a, a public narrative about groups like ISIS that's easy for the public to understand. But when it comes to thinking about state sponsors of terrorism like Iran, it's harder to get into the details with allies when you're asking them, for instance, to put in measures to cripple the Iranian regime. In the wake of the decision to back out of JCPOA, there has been this fundamental tension between the United States government and the Europeans on how to push sanctions forward against Iran. And part of that problem exists in the fact that the U.S. narrative is confused and clouded. And part of the reason is we're unable to share very specific, detailed information with those countries because of sources and methods. When it comes to a country like North Korea, it's hard for the public to understand why the State Department put a country like North Korea on the state sponsor of terrorism list. It doesn't seem like it's a country, for instance, that's supporting transnational terrorist groups. Sure, it supported the groups like the Japanese Red Army in the 1970s, but who are they supporting today? Al-Qaeda, ISIS? The answer is unequivocally no, they're not supporting countries like that. So that makes for a confusing narrative. And 
quite frankly, it's been my experience that the state sponsor of sanction tool has been more of a political tool than a tool that has real teeth, a tool that actually is applied in the same way we apply it towards transnational groups or individuals. Well, I, that was literally my next question because Cuba has been on and off the list yes, it, for quite it some has. time. And that really is a political football more than anything else. I Absolutely. mean, that is trying to court South Florida viewers. Miami viewer, politics. Yeah, Miami politics, which as the listeners know, I know very well, um, or at least I pretend to. That seems to be more, I mean, even with like North Korea and other places. I mean, we've known Iran has been sponsoring Hezbollah for three and a half decades plus now at this point. It's not a secret the European countries obviously know that as well. This seems to be potentially a way to negotiate diplomatically, but also as a kind of a political football in many ways. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. When it comes to countries like Cuba and North Korea, it's more about other things than terror. For North Korea, when I was in the State Department office in 2008, one of the first things we did was take North Korea off the list. Why did we take them off the list? Because of the nuclear issue. We wanted them to roll up their program, they imploded Yongbyon reactor, and they came off the state sponsor of terrorism list. So it's an interesting lever point we can use for political purpose to get other things unrelated to terrorism policy-oriented issues. For Cuba, it's completely something else. It was about communism, remains about communism. People are still talking about whether or not Cuba should be added back to that list. Perhaps in the 1970s, Cuba was an active sponsor to a number of groups like the FARC, the ELN, um, ETA in Spain, but today it's not sponsoring those kinds of groups. A lot of these may be kind of considered low impact, right? So what if, if North Korea is sponsoring some kind of terrorism other places? Uh, obviously, people care about some of the Middle Eastern terror that's happening. That's kind of primary in our focus. But when a state sponsor of terrorism has real-world impacts that we can't ignore is going on right now, and that's in Kashmir where if you don't know, there's a shooting war pretty much taking place between two nuclear powers, uh, India and Pakistan, over Kashmir. And, and some of the background to this is for three decades, most nuclear weapons experts said if there's going to be a nuclear war, it's going to be over Kashmir between India and Pakistan. And they've fought three wars since the end of World War II, uh, one in 1999 when they both were nuclear powers, but that wasn't necessarily one that could escalate. But this one has some juice to it, and it all started not because Pakistan attacked India, but because a terrorist organization blew up a car bomb that killed 40 Indian troops, and it was blamed on Pakistan because they harbored, and you could argue, sponsored this organization. Absolutely. This is a, a delicate issue. I've written about it recently in, in Lawfare, as you're aware of Vince. It's uh, an issue of profound concern to me because you have two countries, as you mentioned, that have nuclear weapons. You have a, a country in Pakistan that has a historic... Uh, emphasis on supporting proxy organizations to do its bidding. And groups like Jaishi Mohammed, the group that took credit for the recent attack about two weeks ago, is a group that has received financial support and sanctuary from the government of Pakistan. Does that fit the legal criteria for putting a country like Pakistan on the state sponsor of terrorism list? The legal criteria is very vague. It is a country can be added to the state sponsor of terrorism list if it has carried out or provided support more than once in a repeated manner for acts of international terrorism. So the question is, why isn't Pakistan, to me, on the state sponsor of terrorism list? Because it is supporting groups like Jaishi Mohammed. It's led to this spin-up of conflict between India and Pakistan. The recent downing of two Indian aircraft and the capture of the Indian pilot has made things quite tense. 
Imran Khan, of course, has announced the fact that he's going to release the Indian pilot on Friday. That's good news. Hopefully that will help de-escalate things and lead to less tension. But now is the time for diplomacy. Now is the time to have serious dialogue with the government of Pakistan about its historic support for groups like Jaish-e Mohammed. And we know that historically, Pakistan has supported other groups like Lashkar-e Taiba, the group that carried out the 2000 Mumbai attack. Would a state sponsor of terrorism listing have impact? That's a fundamental question policymakers need to decide by the interim. I think we need more diplomacy to try to ensure that we can dial back tension. Well, you mentioned some terrorist organizations without mentioning the fact that they harbored the Taliban. Absolutely. They allowed al-Qaeda to move in and out of Afghanistan Precisely. and Pakistan. They harbored bin Laden. And you can argue all you want that they didn't know he was there, but whatever. <laughs> um, in the ISI, Pakistan intelligence yeah. is as divided as any organization in the world where one day you can trust them, one day you can't. This seems very political in my mind. And going even to big, huge issues like you don't want to drive Pakistan even more into the hands of the Chinese. You need Pakistan's help to continue the fight in Afghanistan. You need the people in the ISI you can trust to actually work with you. If there's a country on earth that has, well, maybe Saudi Arabia, but if there's a country on earth that has more reason to be added to the state sponsor of terrorism, let's it's Pakistan, but you can see politically why they're not. Absolutely. There's no question, Vince, that you're right. And that really highlights whether or not there should be a state sponsor of terrorism list. You have general public can understand the fact that Pakistan has historically supported groups like Lashkar-e Taiba, Jaishi Muhammad that sit on the State Department's foreign terrorist organization list. But yet you have a country like Pakistan not on the state sponsor of terrorism, while you have a country like North Korea. And I would challenge somebody to point to me a group that it supports that's a terrorist group on the list. And that, that really is highlights the fact that this is a, a political decision. It's not a decision about applying sanctions in the way sanctions are designed to be implemented, and that is in a preventative manner, in a thoughtful manner. Let me shift the focus to publicity, because I think publicity has become even more in people's minds because of ISIS's ability to use social media and to kind of get their word out. I, I think back to the way the IRA in the 70s was able to kind of shape their message to attract money from current members of Congress, right? We won't name them. You can look it up. We're, we're providing funding to the IRA back in the 1970s as they were setting car bombs and assassinating people inside Northern Ireland. Terrorists today are able to use social media, to use publicity, to use traditional media you know, to their beck and call to, to fund themselves, to get more people to recruit. How do we go about and do something about this? Because you know, social media is a double-edged sword in respects as you want to maintain the ability to use open source intelligence methodology because most of the time they're stupid and they post a video of their secret layer and can I give you geospatial clues behind it but at the same time how do you prevent them from using that as a recruitment tool or a fundraising tool it's really an impossible question for a, a democracy to to resolve in my my view what you can do is you can tackle the problem on the margins and one way that the US government has done it is by using the designations tool to be able to lever that designation with Silicon Valley companies to take down content produced by groups like ISIS. But for Silicon Valley, it's like whack-a-mole. In the context of the Al-Shabaab attack in Westgate, you may recall, Shabaab was Twittering very actively during that attack. And Twitter was taking down their, their feeds, but new feeds would come up. And that's a really hard problem for democracy to handle. So using levers like designations to work with Silicon Valley to take down content has been successful. 
but it is not a comprehensive way of dealing with that problem. And like you say, there, there are times when, as somebody who relied on putting together a terrorist designation package for the Secretary of State, I actually like the fact when terrorists say things that we can use for our sanctions package or dossier of evidence for the secretary that is out in the public ether. Otherwise, it makes it really hard for us to tell that narrative unless we get things declassified from right. the intelligence community. In the context of why it's important to take down content, terrorists have used social media to crowdsource and crowdfund. Groups like Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS have been very effective in that raising small amounts of money from many, many individuals who are sympathetic to that cause. And that's another reason why we have to work very carefully with social media companies to take that content down. But we also need to be mindful of um, going too far. And I think in some ways, to bring the conversation back to the Irish Republican Army, when Margaret Thatcher was thinking about the IRA and the IRA's interviews with British media, she was inflamed and she put forward a stricture that said that those interviews couldn't be published. They can talk about, the press could talk about those interviews, but they couldn't film those interviews. And once you start taking things like that down, you walk a, a really serious uh, line about whether or not you're crossing into First Amendment abridgment. And that is a significant concern to me. And in the context of the United Kingdom, I'm not sure it really worked in terms of taking away their platform. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. We brought up the First Amendment, and I think that's a perfect segue to where I want to spend a lot of time and I'm talking about domestic terrorism. Um, you've seen all over the place that it's on the rise. Let's kind of apply a little numbers to this, if we can, or kind of a little bit more than just saying it's happening more. Yep. My, my trouble with that is, is, as a historian, certainly, is I'm always worried about the causality correlation argument about is it actually happening more? Are we just learning about it more because of the 24-hour news cycle, because things are always on TV? Are there any kind of fungible quantitative numbers that back that up? Great question, and I, I've written a, a few pieces on this in Lawfare as well. If you look at the metrics and you put aside two events, um, if you look at the numbers between 1990 and 2017 produced by the Global Terrorism Database at the University of Maryland or John Jay's database on extremist crime, if you put aside the 9-11 event and you put aside Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City attack carried out by Timothy McVeigh, Obviously, 9-11 attack carried out by al-Qaeda killed nearly 3,000 people. If you put those two attacks aside, then you look at the metrics and numbers of individuals killed in the United States in terms of Islamist groups who killed Americans, you have a figure of about 130 individuals. And if you look at the numbers of domestic extremists who have killed Americans, you have 270 
And those numbers are rising over the last two years. So from my perspective, I think the metrics exist for us to start thinking about domestic terrorism more seriously. And I've put out the position that we're not thinking enough about it, as you know. Well, as you've said, there, there's no federal law that specifically relates to this. I mean, there's obviously a law about international terrorism that, you know, even going to wanting to go support ISIS, there's laws against that in most Western countries. But there's no federal law about domestic terrorism. So you can't indict someone for being a domestic terrorist. That seemed to have pretty significant impact. I mean, if you just look at, you know, local news here in D.C. is the, is the Coast Guard lieutenant who had enough guns to fight a small war and had plans to go. I mean, if you've been in Washington, members of Congress are walking from the House office buildings across the street, you know, to Congress. They're going to lunch at Hawk and Dove. They're walking around. <laughs> Great bar. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's if you wanted to, it wouldn't be all that hard to do a lot of damage. And this guy seemed to be hell-bent on doing that because of a political position. I mean, that seems like the definition of terrorism to me. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, I wrote recently with Mary McCord, a former high-level official at the Department of Justice National Security Division, that we really do need a law. We need a law immediately to have extra leverage in terms of prosecutions of individuals who are carrying out explicit violence for a political reason. And that is the definition of terrorism, especially when those acts of violence manifest in the deaths of civilians. So if you look at Christopher Hassan, it was very clear to anybody, based on his tweets, his social media account, what's been projected in the press, that he was going to go after individuals for political purposes. If you look at the Robert Bowers attack in Pittsburgh from last year, same thing happened. Went after individuals for a political reason. Caesar Sayoc, the individual who was mailing pipe bombs to politicians, had a political motive. None of those individuals can be labeled a terrorist. And from my perspective, that's a failing of the US political system. There needs to be a serious review by Congress to look at the statutes to see whether or not we can update it to include a new domestic terrorism statute. But there's other things we can do as well. I mean, the, the Coast Guard lieutenant really could only be charged on kind of some firearms laws. And he fortunately had some drugs, so he got a drug possession. I mean. If we had gotten to the point where the firearms had been purchased legally and he didn't have the drugs and there's very little anyone could have really done, I mean, writing about not liking Democrats and, and others is not against the law and obviously for good reason. The First Amendment comes into play there. Then, of course, what's interesting is you have Robert Bowers who kills 11 people inside a synagogue and, and it wasn't randomly chosen. It was this is targeted. It was targeting Jewish worshipers inside a synagogue. Neither of these were designated domestic terrorism and actually the media had a hard time calling it terrorism. This is, might be a weighted question, but is there somewhat a racism element in this where if Bowers was, you know, Najee Muhammad and he walked into a synagogue and killed 11 Jewish worshipers, we'd be all over this calling this terror. Even if he was an American citizen, even if he had like a fifth generation, grew up in like Detroit, we would have no problem whatsoever in calling this domestic terrorism. Absolutely. I, I think you're... Vincent, I think you're right. I think if this was somebody else of the Muslim faith, of the Islamic faith, you would see a, a very different response from Capitol Hill, from politicians. There would be a lot more talk about whether or not this individual had any links to transnational groups. Even if that person didn't have links to transnational groups, I think you would still see the public opinion come out in an area where public opinion would think the individual is a terrorist. So I do think there is a double standard. All the more reason that we pass a domestic terrorism law, from my perspective, to ensure that 
there aren't double standards as the American public thinks about terrorism. Historically, unfortunately, recently, over the last 20 years, because of multiple wars, whether it's the war in Afghanistan or the multiple wars in Iraq, a lot of people in the country have identified terrorism with people from the Middle East and Gulf exclusively. And one of the reasons why I've been writing more about this is because I think that's unfair. I think there are other kinds of terrorists. I think Robert Bowers was a terrorist, Caesar Syox a terrorist, and Christopher Hassan was a would-be terrorist. It's more than just unfair. It's dangerous, isn't it? Right? Where if we're profiling people based on their ethnicity, then, I mean, there's the old joke of like, you know, you see me walking down the street, I could have an RPG strapped to my back, but I'm a white guy with blonde hair and all American. And, you know, someone kind of skipping along, giving money to the Salvation Army, it could be a Muslim American or a black American in some cities and be profiled as the bad guy when I'm actually the one doing it. I mean, this is something that we thought, I thought we had learned after McVeigh or Koresh even before him. Uh, It's real problematic. It emboldens people. That's what it does. It emboldens people to think that they can do certain things. And in some ways they've been emboldened by our politicians in some cases. There's been a lot of rhetoric about nationalism being okay. And really that makes me shudder when nationalism, social nationalism, goes back to World War II and the theology of the the Nazis. And that is very disconcerting. So by not having a law in place, we do embolden individuals. And I think in some ways we can give them a pass or the perception of possibly giving them a pass. One thing I found interesting from what you're writing was the idea that because we don't have a law in place, our numbers on this may be wrong and actually may be way too low because reporting is not required. And we actually, I I give you an idea, we have a traveling exhibit that's been traveling around for about a decade focused on domestic terrorism. Uh, And we have to take all our numbers from the Southern Poverty Law Center and from organizations like that because there isn't a Department of Justice or a, you know, a database from there. The FBI collects data, but it's all voluntarily given to the FBI from local places. Uh, And actually, you argue, it undercounts incidents of racially, you know, religiously motivated hate crimes or things like that. And absolutely. And one of the arguments we made recently in our piece in Lawfare was the fact that there needs to be a congressional requirement for the federal government to start compiling statistics in this area. The State Department has a report called the Country Reports on Terrorism. The State Department is obligated, pursuant to law passed by Congress, to report incidents of terrorism. And historically, the University of Maryland has had a statistical annex in that country report on terrorism, and it documented the acts of terrorism carried out by transnational terrorist groups like Boko Haram, for instance. We don't have a similar report in the United States to document that. To understand the true nature of the threat, we need better metrics. Groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League, are perceived to have a bias. They're perceived to have a, a certain slant. The federal government, if it compiles some statistics on this matter, I think would get us past some of these challenges in terms of rhetoric. You, you talked about Congress needing to pass a law, and I think that that might be the problem in many cases because <laughs> there was an attempt at trying to get this done a little while ago, about 10 years ago now, at the very beginning of the Obama administration, um, and it got shot down. Um, Department of Homeland Security, Extremism and Radicalization Branch, issued a report, Attentions Resurgence of Right-Wing Terrorism or Extremism. Uh, and it wasn't just, a, it wasn't even a law, right? It was just DHS putting out a report that basically they had set on fire because of the political backlash. 
it, it doesn't seem if you look at things like the aftermath of Charlottesville, if you look at things like the aftermath of these shootings or attempted shootings we talked about, where not to get political, I'm not trying to in this case, you get the whole both sides arguments. It seems problematic that we are going to have a law that Congress is going to pass. It's going to be really hard. In 2009, that report inflamed the Republican Party. I remember John Boehner going on this, the floor talking about it and condemning it. And the term far right is a loaded term. Right. I wish we could think of a better term to label these groups that wasn't based on the perception of where they sit on a political spectrum. And that may be one way to change the discussion. But Congress being where it is right now, the House controlled by the Democrats, Republicans on the Senate side, I do have low hopes for a bill to be passed. But we need to have that conversation. Congress can at least convene some hearings, have some discussion. And hopefully that will lead to some ideas that hopefully can be implemented at some future point. But you're absolutely right. The various departments who had responsibility for working on these issues, for analyzing these issues, uh, disseminating reports have been absolutely eviscerated, whether it's DHS or the FBI. I think they have been put and reoriented towards the quote unquote Islamist threat and to the detriment of looking at domestic terrorist entities and individuals. And in some ways it's like, pre 9-11. Nobody was thinking about Al-Qaeda. The FBI had, what, eight Arabic speakers. The CIA was looking at things not based on groups who were motivated by religious ideology. In the month before 9-11, the FBI was briefing on the big threat in the United States, animal activist groups as a terrorist threat. I, I see us in that direction right now. I think we're not paying enough attention and we need to. Well, civil libertarians, and, and this is an understandable argument, and I think it's an important argument, are saying, how can you do this with domestic organizations in First Amendment rights, particularly free speech rights. The idea is, I mean, that's, that's a big argument against hate crime laws, right, too. It's like, how do you legislate what people say and what people think? You know, murder is murder, whether you do it because you hate the guy or you do it because he owes you money, it's still murder. Where do you get into First Amendment issues when it comes to designating somebody as a domestic terrorist organization? Unless they've blown something up, in which case you can just arrest them all and throw them in prison anyway. But how do you, in America, how do you stop them from saying bad things about the government, right? That's the whole intent of the Constitution in the first place was to allow us to speak out against the government. Absolutely. And through the notion of protected free speech, I, I am a person who embraces that. But there are limits to free speech as well. And I think even groups like the ACLU will say that if an individual is saying something that is going to provoke violence or is going to incite violence, that that rhetoric is problematic. So if you have certain groups in the United States, and there are a few who are inherently violent organizations who simply espouse violence in order to change the system, those are the kinds of groups I think we should focus on, whether it's for possible prescription, which I know is a very dangerous and fraught potentially um, issue to pursue. And that's why in the recent article, we, we thought there's things that can be obviously done before that. But there are groups like the Othenwalk Division, a group that upholds neo-Nazi ideology, a group like the Rise Above Movement, what the raison d'etre is to carry out acts of violence. So if there is some future point where there is a domestic terrorism statute where prescription is a part of that, I would see a very small number of groups being listed. And I think first and foremost, we have to think about where the gaps exist legally and how if we were to put together a domestic terrorism statute that looked at prescription, that we'd be very careful about how that is crafted to preserve First Amendment. Because the last thing we need is to be able to have politicians who can label individuals just based on their ideology. To me, that's very dangerous. And I'm absolutely against that. 
Well, I mean, some, some would argue, and certainly some groups have, that the founding fathers would be considered terrorists by the British government. The British did. Absolutely. Right. If the, the British, British had a prescription system back then, they would have been labeled terrorists. Absolutely. Right. And so some of these groups that their express purpose is to change the U.S. government in a certain direction, whether it's right or left, you know, they're, you see, that's why you see the don't tread on me flags flying around and, you know, don't step on snake and all the, the ideas of, of kind of the foundation of this country is kind of intrinsic in some of these. And you certainly see that from the militia groups and from like the Bundys and others. Yeah. There is that fine line. And, and I, look, I, I, I'm not a far right person by any respects, but I'm, I'm very hesitant to give the power to the government to decide where that line is based on this is a dangerous group versus this, this is a group that I disagree with politically, but they have every right to say their stupid shit as much as they want to. It's not my right to get in their way. I mean, it's kind of the Voltaire argument, right? They, I, I don't have a lot of trust in Congress that they're going to draw that line in the right place and that it's not going to fly all over the place depending on who controls Congress. No, absolutely to be concerned about Vince and if there are organizations that are inherently violent, like the Atom Waffen Division, Rise Above Movement, who may have links to other groups that are overseas, for instance, I think that allows for more flexibility as well. And that's why there is interim measures should be explored before we actually get to that point of even considering or contemplating prescription. And first and foremost, I think being able to apply after the fact, the label to an individual who's carried out an act of terrorism makes the most sense. And I think that was a fairly uh, small change that would need to be made in the statutes. And I think in some ways, uh, even civil libertarians may be comfortable with being able to say after somebody's carried out an act of violence like Robert Bowers could mm -hmm. be labeled, depending on whether or not it met the definition, was an act of violence politically motivated against civilians. Maybe individuals like that will be easier to label. And I think that's the first step. The second step, really before all that, like we said before, the first step really is to actually understand the true nature of the threat and getting better statistics. And then we can have that conversation, I think, about the te domestic terrorism statute. And then from there, what tools the federal agencies need to have in place to be able to counter the threat. And we need to understand whether or not some of these domestic groups have foreign links as well. Well, I, you talked and you've written about the, the benefits of trying to do this, of actually being able to designate people as domestic terrorism. And it kind of flows off of 18 U.S. Code 2339A. Mm -hmm which is already on the books talking about providing Correct. material support to terrorists, right? And people have heard of this before. The idea is you send money to ISIS, yep. you're in deep shit, right? I have you, a transnational link. Right, absolutely. transnational link. And that would, you'd think, also apply to the IRA, but it doesn't for whatever reason. But you lay out three kind of key benefits to having this ability to kind of focus on domestic terrorist groups. And the first one we already kind of talked about absolutely. is the idea of being able to use the financial powers yeah. of the country against these groups. Yeah. Uh, and others being the ability to, to label someone like Bowers a terrorist, to, to stigmatize that individual in an effort to perhaps deter individuals who may be the next Robert Bowers, concerned about being labeled a terrorist, or to deter those who would support financially individuals like Robert Bowers. And I think that's that benefit as well. The third benefit, I live in California right now, professor at the Middlebury Institute, is Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is struggling with what to do about content that comes from individuals that are linked to far right wing extremist 
ideology, people who are supporting or channeling the Turner Diaries and using phrases like day of the rope, which is essentially a phrase that means we have to gather up all minorities in this country and hang them, an inherently violent phrase that comes from the Turner Diaries. Silicon Valley doesn't have a lot of leverage to be able to take that content down. So one way to give Silicon Valley some leverage is to consider the domestic terrorism statute that would allow them to have a bit more ease in taking down content that is inherently violent, a call to violence. Well, your second reason we kind of glossed over a little bit, but I think it's maybe one of the most powerful is the idea of it makes domestic terrorism that much more difficult to do after the fact because anyone who helps you hide or helps you get around would be subject to pretty harsh laws. And you, you mentioned the, the 96 Olympic bombing in Atlanta where uh, Eric Rudolph was able to kind of escape capture for, yeah, for a long time because he had people helping him and there were people making T-shirts. I can imagine that enacting a law or at least some kind of premise like this would, would make it much more difficult for people to get away with things once they've already done it, particularly if this allows you to have wide indictment powers against militias and other things like that. Absolutely. And I, I just want to clarify one thing. Inherently making a a t-shirt that says run Rudolph run for instance I would not want to criminalize something like that but if the proceeds from a shirt sale went to Eric Rudolph that's where I could see um, this potential statute having some kind of deterrent effect to discourage individuals for providing direct support to somebody like Eric Rudolph who was a murderer and was motivated by hateful tendencies and targeted civilians if let me let me throw a thought experiment in your direction if a Virginia-based gun store sold a assault rifle to someone who sent it to ISIS, and they knew they were sending it, to, I literally I walked in and I said, "I need to buy that AR-15 because I'm going to put it in a box and send it to ISIS." And they did it. They would be liable for providing material support to terrorists. Yeah, they'd be uh, providing material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization and probably prosecuted under 2339B of the Immigration Nationality Act. So what if a gun store sells a weapon to a guy with a Nazi tattoo who is going to be designated a terrorist? All of a sudden, is there other Second Amendment issues to this as well? Are there, are, is this kind of, there's a slippery slope, it sounds like, that could possibly be problematic in this? Because it's, it's one thing to send stuff overseas, but the rights that we have here in this country are very different than those of people in Yemen or Afghanistan or anywhere else. Absolutely, and, and that is an excellent point, Vince. That's why any legislation drafted on a domestic terrorism statute needs to be extremely carefully worded. The one thing great about America is we have lots of lawyers, and we have a lot of smart lawyers on Capitol Hill that they would have to be able to, to thread that needle in a way to ensure that an individual who sold a gun in your scenario wouldn't be prosecuted unless they knew they were going to provide that arm to somebody that was going to carry out some kind of violent act against civilians, for instance. So I, I think there is a way to word the, right. the legislation in a way that an individual who just happened to sell something to a Nazi and they sold it, they saw their tattoos, but they had no idea what that individual's motivations were and they can legitimately make that sale. The person wasn't a felon, for instance, mm -hmm. and didn't have a past criminal history. I think there, that person, any law that is drafted should not implicate that gun owner, given the Second Amendment. So what's the path to passing this? I mean, is there one? I mean, is there, are you trying, 
I know you're writing articles. I know you're trying to get the publicity out there. <laughs> is there a path to get legislation put forward? I mean, it, it, is this a pipe dream or is this something that can actually be done potentially? I think there are things that can be done in the margins. I think one of our recommendations simply is to have a report and to better document what's going on. I think that's feasible. Having some kind of domestic report that documents acts of violence based on hate or other kinds of crimes, to me that's something both parties should be able to get behind. Whether or not you'll be able to criminalize activity as domestic terrorism to get extra charges to prosecute individuals like Robert Bowers, Caesar Sayoc, I think, unfortunately, you're going to have to have another significant event, an event along the lines of what Timothy McVeigh did to trigger new law. And in fact, that's what happened after Al-Qaeda's 9-11 attack. You had an adoption of many new laws, um, many of which the State Department and Treasury Department have used to prescribe individuals pursuant to Executive Order 13224. It's very likely going to take a, a trigger event like that that's going to lead to significant change in the interim that my hope is that there'll at least be some small change on the margin that allow for better reporting from federal agencies and to give them more resources they need to actually infiltrate some of these organized organizations like the Waffen Division to give them that, that ability to, to pursue those groups. And I think right now politically, they're not able to because they've been oriented in a direction that simply focuses on the Islamist threat. Well, my final question is, again, maybe I'm showing some of my ignorance on this, but why not just create a law against terrorism that applies, whether it's foreign or domestic? Why not have a terrorism writ large, right, define it in a very specific way and say, if you engage in these acts, no matter where you are, you're a terrorist, and therefore we have a certain set of options and tools that we can use against you. And if you go to the FBI website, you look at their definition they have a definition that could very easily apply to domestic bound entities. Why, why the distinction? I think the distinction has existed for the reasons you mentioned earlier, the founding of this country, the push against the British, the fact that our own founding fathers could have been labeled as terrorists. I think that is going to lead to a lot of reticence about trying to, to merge a statute that incorporates both foreign and domestic. And for that reason, I think it'll always be bifurcated if we get to that point at all in terms of passing a domestic terrorism statute. Well, I recommend you go check out Jason's writings on Lawfare and other places. Uh, you can also see uh, the YouTube uh, film of his talk specifically about ISIS and antiquities, which as a museum guy, I found fascinating. Um, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. Vince, it was a pleasure. Nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. 
please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.